Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, powered by Zencaster. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a research fellow and social psychologist at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Lisa Wade, an associate professor of sociology and gender and sexuality studies at Tulane University. She is also the author of the book, American Hookup, The New Culture of Sex on Campus. In this show, we're going to be talking all about hooking up. Lisa actually had more than 100 college students keep weekly sex journals for an entire semester, and she's going to give us an inside look at what she found. Some of the topics that we'll be exploring include the roots of hookup culture and where it all began, what young adults' experiences in this culture are like, as well as who's benefiting from it and who isn't. We're also going to chat about how to make navigating hookup culture easier and how to have healthy casual sex. I can't wait for this conversation, so let's dive in. Hi, Lisa, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I saw you give a talk last year on hookup culture, and I was hooked. And I knew that I needed to have you on my show. So to kick off our conversation, can you tell us a little bit about your backstory? So you're a sociologist who studies and writes extensively about gender and sexuality. So how did you get here and what got you into this field? Oh, well, I was a first generation college student. So I, I like, like many first generation college students, as a first year student, I was really not 100% sure I was going to make it through college. I didn't know if I had what it took. And it, maybe that sounds silly now, but I mean, it was real for me back then. And I majored in philosophy, which I absolutely loved. But there wasn't a single woman philosophy professor or graduate student in the entire department. And I just, you know, I, was, I felt like I was up enough. I was up against enough being first gen. And I just, I just didn't have it in me to like fight that battle too. But in my first year of college, I took a sociology of sexuality class. And I was studying so hard because I was so afraid of failing out of school that I managed to score in the top 20 out of 500. And then they plucked those top 20 out of that 500 and they put us in an honors class the next quarter. And um, that gave me this like confidence around sexuality. Like at, at just the moment when I really needed to know I could be a good student, right? I got, I did very well in that class. I got put into this honors, honors group. And then I ended up being a grader for the larger class. And I became a pure sex educator on campus. And so it was an arena um, around which I just gained a lot of confidence. So when I was graduating from college and trying to think about wanting to continue school, I didn't think I could do philosophy. It just didn't seem plausible. But I, I still felt confident around sexuality. So I ended up getting a, a master's degree, an interdisciplinary master's in human sexuality. And then it launched me on the rest of my career. Well, thank you for sharing that. So let's talk a little bit about hookups, because you've written a really important book on this subject. And as a starting point for this, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about what hookup culture is and isn't, because I think this is one of those things that is widely misunderstood. And the popular media narratives around it are kind of confusing. So for example, a lot of people seem to be under the impression that hookup culture is necessarily about sexual activity levels. So they take that term to mean that college students today are just 
hooking up all the time and that they're doing it more than ever. But when you look at the data, young adults today are no more sexually active than generations past. And if anything, they're having sex with fewer partners and with less frequency. And that's led some people to say, well, this whole idea of hookup culture must be a myth then. So tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say the term hookup culture. What are we really talking about here? Sure. Well, and, and I'm partly to blame for this, but I would love us to start saying hookup cultures to acknowledge that there could be many, many different kinds of hookup cultures. And some might be a lot healthier than others. Some might have something wrong with them that the, another one doesn't, but that other one might have something else wrong. So there's a whole variety of possibilities for hookup cultures. And I generally define them as having three characteristics. Hooking up is cultural when, and by that I mean, it's not just that there's hooking up at the school, that has always been true in college, but that it has actually become part of the culture. It's cultural when, one, there's the idea that hooking up is how you're supposed to do college. So it's, it feels almost like an obligation, or if you want to do college right, then you're supposed to be hooking up. Two, there's a, a known script, so an understood set of practices and roles that you would um, engage in in order to make that hookup happen. And then three, it's kind of part of the rhythm and architecture of the institution. So it's institutionalized too. So students know when and where to go hook up and who is most likely to provide opportunities for that. So that's what I describe as a hookup culture. Notice that nowhere in that definition did I say students are hooking up. <laughs> nowhere in yep. there at all. And in fact, about a third of students will never hook up a single time in their entire time in school. Um, but that's true of culture in general, that something that can be cultural is not necessarily enacted by everyone. So, for example, it's cultural in our society to first, you know, get your education and only then get, and then get a good job and only then get married and then have a kid in that order, right? And of course, most of us don't do that. And yet everyone knows that that's what you're quote unquote supposed to do. So it's similar with hookup culture. Everyone knows like this is what you're supposed to do, but students have varying relationships to those cultural expectations. Yeah. I love the way you described all of that. And I think that broadening the term and saying hookup cultures, you know, that, that is important for acknowledging that, Hey, there are different cultures that exist around casual sex and, and hooking up. And I think sometimes we often take for granted that there is just this one dominant hookup culture or it's the only one that does exist. And that's something I want to get into a little bit later when we talk about LGBTQ individuals and hookup culture and how that can be a, a totally different thing compared to when we're talking about hookup culture in heterosexual populations. So we'll definitely get into that more a little bit later. But let's talk about where this kind of hookup culture first came from. So in your book, you talk about how there was this big shift in the culture at colleges, right? Where college used to be primarily about education. And at some point along the way, it started to become about fun, right? And so, you know, I think a lot of us kind of just take for granted this idea that college is necessarily about fun and it always has been about fun, at least to some degree, but that wasn't always the case. So I think this story is fascinating. So tell us a little bit more about this and how that shift in the overall culture of the college translated to the emergence of hookup culture. Sure. I love this story too. And um, one of the best things about writing books is you get to learn stuff. And so I learned a lot of this stuff for the book and um, it was a delight. So 
if you go back to the colonial era in American history, colleges were really boring. They were mostly filled with middle-class men who wanted to become ministers. So curriculums were difficult. They were not designed to be um, particularly interesting to young people. And there was a lot of church, a lot of church. There was a lot of, um, you know, bend, bending to authority. So people, you know, people were told when to get up and what to eat and how to cut your hair and so on and so forth. There was nothing about it that you would consider like, oh, this is going to be the best time of my life. <laughs> and But around the mid-1700s, you know, we're getting this like rich class in America and they're looking around for something to justify their hoarding of wealth and power in this country. And so they decide that the thing that that's going to be is the diploma. They're going to decide that if you have a diploma, then it's okay for you to have more than other people. And by the way, that's still why we get them today to a great degree. So uh, they start sending these really rich young men to college. It's all men at this time, of course. And those men have much less tolerance for authority, for boredom, for studying hard. And they kind of, um, they, they start about a hundred years of, of rioting on college campuses in opposition to the conditions of, of their lives there. And this rioting was really violent. I mean, the colleges were bringing in militias to tamp down these riots. And in order to try to address this, this the campus presidents all kind of got together and they were like, what are we going to do? And they said, well, let's, let's start expelling students who, who riot and then we'll all agree not to accept into other our other institutions anyone who is expelled from another one. So if you got caught rioting and expelled, your higher education was over. And it seemed like that might be a pretty, pretty serious punishment. Well, every campus did this. Every campus president agreed, except for one guy in Schenectady, New York. This college president decided he was going to sweep in all of those rich guys that got kicked out of those other schools. And it was at that college, Union College, that the first social fraternity was formed. So the social fraternity was from the beginning an organization specific to rich young men on college campuses designed to foster rebellion against authority and having fun in college. And they were so successful, um, as elites often are, in sort of gathering the imaginations of other people, that you know by the 1920s or so, 1930s, the, the frat boy had emerged as the iconic collegian, like the example of how everyone should want to do college. And so his idea of fun kind of democratizes across the whole student body from there. That is fascinating. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's a story that I, I think is going to be new to the vast majority of people because we don't really know about this history that's there. And so you said that this was something you discovered in the course of writing your book, American Hookup. So what led you to want to study hookups and sort of the history of them in the first place? How did you arrive there? Oh, yeah. Like my earlier research was very, very different. But I was teaching at a nice little liberal arts school and I was really enjoying teaching social sexuality to my students. And we were We had small classes and we were talking a lot. And I was comparing what I was hearing in class with what I was hearing in the mass media and even what I was reading in the literature at the time, which was pretty sparse. And I noticed a couple things, and I'll specifically talk about the pop culture. So the pop culture would always center one kind of student. Whenever it was talking about casual sex in college, somehow the person in mind was 
a very attractive, able-bodied, heterosexual white woman. And then the conversation was always around like, should she or shouldn't she? (laughs) And so someone would jump in and say like, oh, casual sex is liberating for college women. Then someone else would jump in and say, no, it's terrible. They don't like it. And then someone else would jump in and say, stop telling women what to do. And that was just going in this circle over and over again. And I, based on my conversations with students, I thought I could do two things to really, really improve this conversation. And one was I could, I could collect the voices of so many different kinds of students with all different kinds of backgrounds and experiences and religious beliefs and, and pushes and pulls into the culture. And I could, I could represent the whole or wide array of students, or at least a good chunk of them. And two, I could ask a far more interesting question than should she or shouldn't she. I could ask about the context in which she's making that decision. Because I, as a sociologist, that's kind of our, our jam, right? So that is kind of what pushed me to start collecting data. And I, I collected three waves of diary data. And after the first wave, I, I was... <laughs> it was over. Like I could, I could, maybe I just would have written a journal article or two, but no, no, no. The data was so good. The students were so insightful and earnest and funny and lovable. And so I knew then that I had something special. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of similar, the story with my book on sexual fantasies, where, you know, I could have taken that data and just written a journal article or maybe even a whole series of articles, but there was so much information in there, it had to be a book. So I can totally relate to that. And so for this data you collected, you had 101 students keep weekly journals for an entire semester about sex and romance on campus. And as you said, you got this wealth of information. And in reading through those journals, you recognize that there were really four different categories that people seemed to fall into when it came to how they felt about casual sex. So can you tell us a little bit about what those broad categories are and what do they tell us about the nature of casual sex on college campuses today? Sure. So about 20% of the students, more or less, because sometimes they change their mind over the course of the, of the semester, but about 20% of students, they were, I, I called them enthusiasts. They loved hookup culture. It was the best thing that ever happened to them. They were having a fabulous time, just absolutely wonderful. And they just 100% were down for hooking up. On the other end of the spectrum were abstainers, and they were about a third of students. So the abstainers were not interested at all in the kind of casual sex that was on offer in hookup culture. They weren't going to participate even a little bit, almost entirely not because they didn't want to be having sex. They just didn't want to be having it like that. And so they were open, interested, wishful, but it just they, didn't, they couldn't stomach hookup culture. In the middle, the, the plurality of students were what I call dabblers. And so they were participating, but with mixed experiences and mixed emotions. Sometimes they liked it. Sometimes they thought about abstaining. They went back and forth about that. And then a very small percentage of students were strivers. They really wanted to be participating in hookup culture, but for one reason or another were excluded. They couldn't find anyone to hook up with them. And that was a very painful place to be. So in coming up with those categories and reviewing the contents of all of these journals, did any of that surprise you? Or is that kind of maybe what you expected to find? Because you had been working in a college setting and you had been having discussions about casual sex with your students for for quite some time. So what did you learn from that? Or did anything surprise you from that? 
Well, I will say that most people imagine that men are more likely to be enthusiasts and women are more likely to be abstainers, or maybe men are even more likely to be strivers, wanting it, but not being able to, to get, sort of get in the game. But in my experience, you know, there may have been a little bit of disproportionality here or there, but for the most part, there were men and women in all of those categories. And it seemed just about equally likely for women to be loving casual sex as for men to be loving it and for men to be abstaining as women were. And so I think that was one of the biggest surprises. Yeah, and I think that's often true in sexuality research is that we find things that don't match up with the stereotypes that people hold about people of specific gender identities. And, you know, for example, I see that in my work on sexual fantasies, where when people think about men and women and sex fantasies, they tend to think of men's fantasies as being very sexually adventuresome and lots of multiple partners and non-monogamy and so forth, whereas women's fantasies are stereotyped as being more passionate and romantic. And what I see is that, you know, most of the things that men are fantasizing about, women are fantasizing about as well, and vice versa. And there's a lot of emotionality in everybody's sexual fantasies. And that emotionality piece, I think, also has implications for this discussion of hookups and hookup culture, because a lot of people really want intimacy in their hookups. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people really struggle with when it comes to navigating hookup culture is that they want to get that intimate interaction, but they feel like they're not supposed to, and and they don't really know how to incorporate that into this environment in which they're navigating sex. So, you know, to go back to something you were talking about, you discussed how, well, this was something you discussed in your book. You talked about how people can opt out of hooking up, but they can't really opt out of hookup culture and how this culture really only serves a minority of students and specifically those who have the most power and privilege and those who don't have that power and privilege are disenfranchised. So I know you hinted at this a little bit earlier, but can you tell us a little bit more about for whom hookup culture is helping and really working, and who is it hurting? So there's nothing wrong with hookup culture on college campuses today that's not wrong with American culture more broadly. So I'm sure your listeners could just apply what they know about the injustices of our world, and they'd get pretty close to what hookup culture is like and how it, it privileges certain students over others. Generally speaking, if you're white, if you're able-bodied, if you are otherwise light-skinned, then if you're conventionally attractive, then you are more likely to be seen as um, highly erotically valuable. And if you're seen as highly erotically valuable, then you have more options to hook up with other people who are the same, and then your status goes up. Then that is a very rewarding thing for those students to do, and so they're more likely to be eager to participate. But if you are seen as erotically unvaluable or even erotically stigmatized, you know, you are seen as someone who is, is unsexy. And then people, then people specifically don't want to hook up with you. And they, there's a great phrase from um, Irving Goffman called courtesy stigma. And this is idea, this idea that if you're associated with someone who's stigmatized and that stigma rubs off on you. So students then will ostracize you. And so whether you're at the bottom of this erotic hierarchy or somewhere somewhere near or even in the middle, then your participation is much more fraught. And we also know that people who are lower um, have lower status are less likely to, to be given pleasure in sexual encounters, are at higher risk of sexual violence and harm. When so high status people can get away with 
more borderline behavior in terms of sexual violence than lower status people can. So even if a lower status person engages in the exact same behavior as a higher status person, they're more likely to get in trouble for that. So it's definitely not um, a safe and free playground for everyone. And, you know, something else related to this that I've heard you talk about before is the intersection of hookup culture and race and ethnicity and how the impact of hookup culture is different for people of different racial backgrounds and how that intersects with you know race and gender and, and all of these other factors. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and sort of the, the intersectionality of hookup culture? Yeah, well, we do something very strange in America where we gender race and we racialize gender. So we tend to believe stereotypically in this country, for example, that black people are more masculine than white people, that they're more athletic, that they're more prone to crime, that they are louder and bigger um, and hypersexual. Those are all stereotypes of men that we apply to black people, men and women alike. Inversely, we tend to feminize Asian people. So we tend to think that Asian people are quieter, more docile, less sexual. So we're applying these stereotypes of femininity to Asian people, both men and women. So what that means is for Black men and Asian women, that particular intersection makes Black men seem especially masculine and Black women seem especially feminine. So it resonates with the expect. Their racial stereotypes resonate with the gender stereotypes. For Black women and Asian men, it does the opposite. They interfere. And so black women are seen as insufficiently feminine and therefore less sexually desirable and Asian men insufficiently masculine and therefore less sexually desirable. And so that positions them in this erotic hierarchy in really different ways. And you might think, well, that sounds great for black men and Asian women, but it's a really double-edged sword because, you know, we all want to be seen as sexy by other people, but it's a whole other thing when you're being fetishized because of the intersection of your race and gender or people are assuming you have certain sexual characteristics because of what you are like, because of what because of the identities you hold, um, and it also puts people at higher risk, right? So that stereotype that black men are hypersexual might make them seem like stallions in bed or something, but it also makes accusations of sexual violence more plausible when applied to them. Yeah. And, you know, everything you're talking about here, I'm also, I'm always going to go back to sexual fantasies because that's what I study. And, you know, I see a lot of these same racial stereotypes creeping into the fantasies that people have. And in sometimes, in, in some cases, there's actually this internalization of the negative stereotypes about your group. And so one example of that would be in looking at the sexual fantasies of Americans. If I look at white individuals, they predominantly fantasize about other whites. About 85% are predominantly fantasizing about other white people. And if you look at Asian Americans, you see almost the exact same number where they're predominantly fantasizing about whites instead of Asians, right? So you've got this outgroup attraction or, or preference there. And I think that's really fed by uh, a lot of the negative cultural stereotypes about Asian men in particular, who, for example, are often stereotyped as being asexual. And so I think that that's some compelling evidence for how 
certain racial stereotypes within a culture get embedded in our sexual attractions and in our sexual fantasies in ways that we might not consciously realize. And something else that supports this idea is that I've also conducted some cross-cultural research on sexual fantasies. And when I study Asian people who live in Asian cultures, they predominantly fantasize about other Asian partners, right? So this is really a uniquely Western thing where we see that internalization of those particular stereotypes. So it's, you know, all fascinating to study and I think why we need more work in this area. Now, we have much more to discuss, including how to navigate hookup culture and tips for healthy hookups. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Have you ever wanted to start your own podcast? If so, you need the best recording platform out there. I've used a bunch of them, but Zencaster is my tried and true. I honestly haven't found anything better in terms of quality. Sign up today for a free two-week trial and use my exclusive discount code SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, all one word, to save 40% off their professional plan. Visit Zencaster.com to learn more. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Wade, author of the book, American Hookup. Now, when people talk about hookup culture, we most commonly hear about how it affects heterosexual, cisgender men and women. So what about the LGBTQ community? What are the implications of hookup culture for this community? And how is hooking up similar or different when we're talking about sexual and gender minorities? Well, I had about 19 students who were out of the 100 who were um, either identified as some queer category or questioning I think what was most interesting for me is that they had a wide range of relationships to, to hookup culture. Some of them found it to be absolutely intolerably homophobic and patriarchal and, you know, binary and all those things. Some of them were just like, this is a great party. I'm having a wonderful time. And, you know, it didn't bother them. Others of them had the exact same complaints as many other people who were identifying as heterosexual. Like one of my my, my student who most pined for love of all of my students was a gay identified man. So I saw a lot of variety. But what we do see on college campuses is definitely that the predominant hookup scenes on college campuses are homophobic, they're heterocentrist, and most students don't feel comfortable expressing or embodying same-sex desire in those environments. So when there's enough students who identify as queer on a college campus, sometimes you see separate hookup cultures emerging on campuses that serve those desires. We see the same thing also uh, among students of color who tend to peel off and have their own hookup spaces. But these are a little bit different 
And here's where, again, it's useful to think about hookup cultures, plural. These queer hookup cultures on college campuses overlap with social support networks. Because they're a stigmatized minority on campus, they're seeking out each other to, you know, support one another through this experience. And so when you're hooking up in that kind of a social support network, you are often held more accountable to other people in terms of how you treat them. And you also, you can't necessarily just like hook up with someone and then never talk to them again because they're going to be in your, your smaller social circle for perpetuity. So, so they tend to be a little bit kinder to one another in, in these um, circles. Although I should say not necessarily thoroughly kind is always um, trouble, but, but yeah, a little bit structurally their position such that they tend to be a little bit nicer. Yeah. And so as you were saying, you kind of need to have a certain critical mass for there to be sort of a queer hookup culture on campus. And if you're at a particularly small university, that network might not exist. And so I think that's part of the reason why there's also much greater uptake of online dating and hooking up in the LGBTQ community, because sometimes it's hard to find those queer spaces where you can meet other people who are similar to you. And so as I'm thinking about this, I'm also wanting to ask you about whether you've looked at hookup culture on dating apps, you know, and especially if you're talking about an app like Grindr that is predominantly used by men who have sex with men, like that that's a whole other hookup culture. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Well, so for my first book, at the time I was collecting data, it was right before students that were looking for hookups with the other sex were really using apps. So most of the um, data I have on using apps was from gay identified men. But the new, the new research I've been doing has been on Tulane students and the pandemic. Now, for context, Tulane students, we went back to school in person all last year. So the entire 2020-2021 school year. So students were living in dorms, they were living in apartments around campus, they were attending class in person. Undergraduates were being tested three times a week. And, but, but parties were, hmm, at least at first, parties were pretty much shut down. And a lot of students were averse to going to them even when they picked up again. So a lot of students turned to apps um, to, to find people. And what was interesting was that even now, even in that situation where basically everyone was using apps. There was this inequality between queer students and students that were looking for hookups with the other sex in that a lot of the students who are doing other sex hookups would really only hook up with other Tulane students because they were getting tested for COVID three times a week. And that seemed like a smart decision to make. Good harm reduction, right? But there were, so there was a fewer, fewer numbers of queer students on campus and so they often felt like if they were going to hook up, they had to go off campus in order to do so. And that was also true of students of color who often felt like the white students didn't want to hook up with them. And so they were hooking up, using apps to hook up with people off campus. So interestingly, that same dynamic that led gay men to go off campus prior to the pandemic was happening um, during, but now we had this added difference of those students are not just now um, sort of having to look elsewhere because they're not mainstreamed, but they're also having to be at greater risk of COVID. Yeah. And so I'm curious now, since you brought up COVID and sort of how that's impacted some of the students at, at your university, 
what do you think are the broader impacts of this pandemic for the the future of hookup culture? You know, how is that going to potentially change it? Do you think this is just sort of temporary where people are pursuing apps at a time when maybe it's riskier to uh, meet other people in person? So is this a more fundamental long-term shift in the ways that we connect? Or do you think once the world opens back up again and people can kind of resume their normal patterns that they're going to go back to the way things were before? Curious about your thoughts. So I'll speak specifically about college. And I have two answers to that question. (laughs) The first one is that the pandemic was a moment for a lot of college students to have epiphanies about themselves, all kinds of different epiphanies. I mean, we had students who, I, I interviewed students who, you know, over the long summer before they went back to school in fall of 2020, when they were quarantined with their parents, you know, were just bored and watching TikTok and ended up somehow in queer TikTok and we're like, oh, <laughs> I'm definitely bisexual. <laughs> they didn't know before, you know, there was a way in which all of that downtime and time to think and, you know, trying to find ways to entertain yourself, like sort of taught them about themselves or students who had never masturbated, who now weren't hooking up with anyone. So they started masturbating and they're like, oh, (laughs) this is fantastic. And I should be expecting more of my sexual partners. Or a lot of students were watching all the politics that were going on during the summer of 2020, especially Black Lives Matter, realizing, oh, I don't want to hook up with Republicans anymore. Those people are bad. So like, there was a lot of individual change, a lot of epiphanies happening. Um, Almost every student I talked to had something like that. That happened to them. So I, you would think that that might change the overall culture, and maybe it will. But the other piece of this answer is to think about the institutionalization of hookup culture. And if anything, you know, before the pandemic, it was largely privileged white heterosexual men who controlled the party scene on most college campuses in general, and therefore the hookup scene too. At Tulane, I think those men consolidated their power because their resource they controlled, the party, became even more hard to access because now it was not allowed. And so they still had giant parties during the pandemic, but now you had to be even more in the loop and you know cater even more to these particular men's desires in order to go to them. And you know, when COVID is endemic instead of pandemic, right? When we're living with it in in a way that is sort of post-COVID, I think that the, the, the how culture is institutionalized is not going to have changed. So the power is still going to be thrown to the same people. And those people are still probably going to be in control of the sexual lives of their peers. So how do you parse those two things, right? Institutionally the same individually very different. Maybe there'll be more dissatisfaction. Maybe there'll be other cultures that pop up to compete with hookup culture. I don't know. Um, but that's that's my thinking on that right now. Fascinating. And that's why we need you to keep studying this because <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to have you back in the future to find out the answers to that. But a lot of what you said resonates with me because I've also done a lot of work during the pandemic looking at how it's impacted people's sex lives and relationships. And one of the things that's particularly relevant is on a recent nationally representative survey that was a joint partnership between the Kinsey Institute and Love Honey. One of the questions we asked people was whether they learned anything new about themselves through masturbation during 
the pandemic. And a majority of Americans said that they did, right? So it, it's really fascinating to think about how this situation, when people had more free time on their hands, I guess they use their hands more, and they <laughs> discovered these new sources of pleasure, new sides of themselves. And I've also seen a little bit of that sexual fluidity coming out as well, where people are also maybe identifying their sexuality differently or recognizing that there's another side to their sexual self. And that could be in the context of same-sex attraction, but it could also be in the context of being more attracted to kinky activities, right? We actually saw a lot of people exploring and experimenting with kink and BDSM during this time. So I am super curious about the future and where all of this is headed and whether these are temporary changes in our sex lives or if they're going to shift the trajectory significantly going forward. Now, I want to turn the conversation to what we can take away from your work on hookup culture, right? We know that hookup culture doesn't work for a lot of people. And even if you try to opt out of it, there can be social costs to it, for example, such as being labeled as sexually repressed or as a prude. So it feels kind of like you're in this damned if you do and damned if you don't situation. So do you have any advice for young adults on how to navigate hookup culture? Like, what do you do in this situation, especially if you are somebody who is not privileged and powerful and is benefiting from hookup culture? Yeah, well, a little bit of just sort of context and then, and then maybe something a little more specific. One thing that hookup culture does is it tells students that it is what liberation is this is what sexual liberation looks like. And so the first thing to notice is that anytime anyone tells you that this one way of being is what liberation looks like, you should be suspicious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> liberation is going to be, you know, being able to be sexual and have sexual contacts in ways that feel comfortable to you for reasons you want with the kinds of people you feel comfortable with. Um, with no social, you know, consequences. So that's going to be, so, it's going to be something more like that, right? So just because someone's telling you this is what liberation is, doesn't mean that's the case. In fact, it's probably the opposite. So then you, you start freed up to really think about what you would like to have personally, what, what you want. And my best piece of advice is going to sound so simple and obvious, but my best piece of advice is to think about what you want and then tell other people that that's what you want. And it's terrifying um, in, in an environment to like be honest and transparent about what you want, especially when what you want is what you're told you're not supposed to want. Um, but it is the quickest and fastest way to get that thing that you want. And I think we really need to reframe how we think about what happens when we tell people what we want. A lot of my students really loathe the idea of being rejected, quote unquote, rejected. They're like, oh, if I tell them, if I tell this person what I really want, they're going to reject me. And I think we should start reframing that as dodging a bullet. <laughs> if they don't want to give you what you want, then you got lucky when that didn't happen. And so I think, you know, being more choosy, thinking about what one wants, being willing to say it out loud. And if every student on campus said what they really wanted, hookup culture would completely radically transform and shrink because that's not what everybody wants. And if students just knew that about everyone else, then there would be the space for all those other kinds of ways of being sexual to, to thrive. 
Yeah. And I know you said it sounds simple, but it's a lot harder to do that than you think because there's all of that pressure to conform to whatever the norm is. And as a social psychologist, I know a lot about that social pressure. And it's really fascinating when you talk about this in the context of hookups, because you have all these people who are striving to hook up, and it's not really what they want. So they're striving for this thing they don't want, and then they get rejected on top of that, which they also don't want. And so, you know, it's it's not a good situation for a lot of people. And so maybe abandoning that approach and getting more in touch with what it is that you want and pursuing that is likely to result in more successful, better outcomes. So I'm totally on board with you about that. Now, in a previous episode of the podcast, episode 27, I spoke with Dr. Jana Vrangalova about casual sex and how to have good casual sex. And I'm sure you must be pretty familiar with Jana's work since she's a big casual sex researcher. But I'd like to build on that conversation with you and ask what you've learned through your work about how to have good casual sex and healthy hookups. So, do you have any advice that you would offer there? I, I know your advice about you know being clear with your partner about what you want is certainly important, but what else do you think makes for a good or healthy hookup? I think we need to expand our mind about what casual sex could be. So right now, what you see on college campuses looks a lot like an enactment of sexuality that fits a stereotypically masculine model. So the particular nature of this hookup culture on college campuses is a hyper-masculine one. And so that means that you're, you know, you're just in it for the sex, <laughs> all you want out of it. And like, you, you know, you don't, you don't even need to like someone. In fact, like, you know, hate fucking is one of like the best kinds of sex, right? Like, so you don't have to like the person and, and there's no like interpersonal accountability. Like everybody's in it for themselves, right? And maybe even it's competitive um, and you're trying to get what you want out of the situation, right? It's just... It's a very hyper-masculine approach. I'm not saying this is how men are. I'm saying this is how we stereotype men, right? But we can imagine, as a thought experiment, a hookup culture that was hyper-feminine, where two people may only have a sexual encounter one time, but they're deeply interested in the other person. They're incredibly um, selfless and generous and giving sexually. They are communicating intensely the whole time. They are in deeply interpersonally accountable to one another. And everyone has as many orgasms as possible, right? That is a, a kind of hyper-feminine way of doing hooking up. I'm not saying that that's better or worse. But I am saying that like we could, we could broaden our minds about what casual looks like. Because casual can be sweet and kind and nice and accountable, you know, and, and selfless even. It doesn't have to be these things we associate with hypermasculinity. And if we do that, if we open our mind, then we can start rethinking what we're asking for in our hookups and what, what we really, and, and also how we treat other people. I think that was one of the most interesting stories I collected with my new data was a woman who thought a lot about the hookups she had over quarantine and concluded that she wanted to be kinder to her hookup partners. She wasn't being very nice. And so I think that is a good step towards really both finding ways to improve your own casual sexual experiences, but also improving the culture writ large. Yeah. And I, I love everything that you said about expanding our definition and our idea of what 
casual sex is because casual sex isn't just one thing. And I think a lot of people who report bad or negative experiences with casual sex had a particular type of casual sex that doesn't work for them. You know, for example, maybe it was a one night stand where there was no connection with the other person and no real communication. And so it wasn't a great sexual experience, but maybe that individual would have a good time in casual sex where maybe it's more of a friend with benefits type of thing where there is that greater intimacy with the other person. It's still casual, but you're adding that intimate component. And in some of the research I've seen on casual sex, most people say that they want at least some intimacy or connection with their partner. You know, our stereotype or our idea for how casual sex, how hookups work is that it's just that one night stand, but it can be so much more than that. And so that's one of the things that I found interesting as somebody who studied casual sex quite a bit myself is that, you know, it takes all these different forms and you have to know what the right form is that works for you. And that's not just true for casual sex. It's also true for your romantic relationships, right? Whether you're right for a monogamous relationship or a consensually non-monogamous relationship. It's all about self-understanding and, and knowing yourself. Yeah. May I add that um, hookup culture makes it especially difficult because it has co-opted the relationship formation process. So most, most committed romantic relationships in college start from a series of hookups where everyone's either not interested in the other person romantically or pretending not to be interested. And that means that if you want a relationship, your best bet to getting one is pretending that you don't. And this is so confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Very confusing. <laughs> so if, if hookup culture could exist alongside a culture where it was perfectly lovely and normal to say, I want to go out on dates and get to know people and form a meaningful relationship alongside or before becoming sexual with them, then we could like peel off that confusion and you could know that when you're doing a hookup, that's what you're doing. Um, and maybe it'll turn into a relationship. But if that's really what you want, you can do this other pathway. I think that would really ease some of the anxiety of hookup culture. But unfortunately, that's not what we see on most college campuses today. Yeah. So I know we're running short on time, but I have one more question for you, which is, how are you feeling about the future of hookup culture? I know you don't have a crystal ball. We don't know how things are going to change, but are you optimistic or pessimistic? Are, are things going to get better? Well, I feel like the direction this country goes is going to be the answer to that question. Because hookup culture is American culture. American culture is a hyper-masculine culture. American culture is status-oriented. It's competitive. It's um, filled with biases and oppression, right? I mean, so if we as a society, you know, turn away from that, I think we'll see that reflected in hookup culture. If we keep barreling down the path we're on, I don't think college students are going to save us all from ourselves. I think we're, we're at a really... We have a very uncertain future in America, in America generally. And I don't know whether we're at the precipice of something better or something worse. Uh, one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we'll see it reflected in hookup culture either way. But yeah, I think you make a really important point there, though, is that the sexual culture in which we're embedded is inextricable from the broader culture in which it's taking place. And these things will influence one another. And so, yeah, we don't know what the future holds, but I'm going to 
hold out and be a little optimistic <laughs> so <laughs> because that'll help me sleep better at night. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Lisa. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your books? Oh, sure. Um, I, I have a website, lisa-wade.com, and there's all kinds of information about me and my work there. And I'm also on Twitter at Lisa Wade. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, which was made on Zencaster, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Lisa's book, American Hookup. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.